0: This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of BingeFest, a 24-hour non-stop celebration of pop culture, the internet and addictive storytelling.
1: I came in at the end. The best is over. Tony Soprano said that in episode 1 of The Sopranos. He was almost 20 years too early to be predicting the Trump presidency and the fate of the United States or even my own position as a culture writer on a major daily newspaper, the Chicago Tribune. He was talking about the mob, of course. He, he felt like he had missed the heyday of the mob. But in a way, he was talking about post, the post-World War II United States, and a lot of people from Kennedy on felt they had missed the glory. The real irony here, though, is that he's not talking about TV. The Sopranos started the new golden age of TV, as I call it, peak TV. The Sopranos was in on the ground floor. The Sopranos came in at the end of bad TV. If you're here and you're listening to me, and you are, I suppose, (laughs) you did not come in at the end, you did not come in at the end either, congratulations. You have lived long enough to see TV get so good that you would rather be watching TV right now than listening to an American talk about TV at the Sydney Opera House. Uh, Why did TV get good? Uh, Why do you want to run out of here right now and binge watch Black Mirror? Here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how TV got good and why TV can be called... uh, highbrow, can be called art now, and why distinctions between highbrow and lowbrow and middlebrow culture are, are kind of complete bullshit. If you're looking for ideas on what to watch next, I suppose you could kind of take a few notes right now. Um, the truth is we really shouldn't be surprised that TV got good. TV really isn't that old. Between the Elvis and the Simpsons, for instance, is only about 30 years. A medium needs time to develop, to find its champions, and to establish rules, so that rule breakers can see the possibilities and demolish those rules, those rules. How do we trace the evolution of good TV? I'm going to tell you about the influencers and the shows that set precedences, precedence. Um, I'm going to describe technologies and market forces, but really it's the same with any kind of art. A bunch of artists are misunderstood and underappreciated, and then they get around to do something even better, and then eventually the audience comes around. I suppose I'm doing this because my entire career has been to varying extents. A long argument for the elimination of cultural tears, the de- demolition of the idea that certain art forms or even subjects are beneath an audience interest. I've written about evil clowns and comic books and Star Wars and handgun violence and hand dryers and famous authors, and that's really just the past three, four months. And, and yet even to me, TV has always felt like a final frontier, the thing that I still don't want to admit that I watch a lot, probably a lot of you feel that same way. When I was a kid, one of my annual rituals was devouring the massive Fall Preview and TV Guide and circling all the shows I wanted to see. Um, now that I say that out loud in front of all you guys, it sounds really sad, I think. Because <laughs> most of the shows sucked. This was the 70s and the 1980s. But now I think I feel, I feel vindicated by that. A few months ago, knowing I was going to be home more with a newborn, I made a list of shows that I would binge watch on in the downtime. And that list stretched to two pages long, which I think is a really good sign of a healthy medium when the riches are too numerous to keep track of. Preparing for this, to be honest, I, I didn't really know where to start. So I think one place we could start is with a guy named Newton Minow. I'm gonna say that name again, Newton Minow. Uh, he's a real guy. He was the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission in the United States. He's a Chicago guy. He's still alive at 90. And In 1961, he gave a speech calling TV a vast wasteland. Um, maybe you've heard this phrase before. He became a boogeyman of sorts uh, to the TV industry for that speech. Granted, he was talking about the input of only three US networks, which was the totality of TV at the time in the United States. Um, This was a man who actually liked TV. He felt the potential for TV was really great, that it could mesh the intimacy of the theater with the scope of great literature. He felt that TV was also squandering that promise. He asked broadcasters to sit all day, one day, and just watch their own stations for about 24 hours. He said what they would see, and this is, a, this is a sample of a longer quote, they would see unbelievable families and sadism and murders and gangsters and cartoons. And my reaction to that, reading that speech again recently, is, is yeah, you're assuming this is all, these are all bad things. Uh, a new art form thinks its purpose is to make better people. And the irony of TV is that, until it had the balls to remind us that we're pretty shitty people a lot of the time, TV actually made better people then, and it made better art. How TV got good is not really a straight line. It's, there's no tidy lineage here. So um, I think let's start with Christmas. It's Christmas. So I, I thought, okay, there's three, his three quick examples of TV as a highbrow medium Christmas style. First is a kind of offensive example. Um, HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm. Larry David, the protagonist, he's a rich, callous man. He casually eats a cookie from a holiday spread. The problem is he chooses the baby, and it's the baby Jesus. And it's a cookie nativity, so he's accused of blasphemy, and uh, his response is honest. He says, I thought he was a monkey. <laughs> but didn't he notice the hay in the manger? And he says, I, I thought that was part of the zoo. Um, for TV to get good, we need people we can relate to, and, and I mean truly relate to. I would do something like that. I think TV needs people who are hard to sympathize with. TV, that's what a viable art form does. It took TV about six decades to accommodate a person like... Larry David, an irredeemable, a loathsome person that we also like, because Larry David, in a lot of ways, is us. Think about this. Larry David, the creator of, this, of Seinfeld, uh, he created a show that was about a miserable person. What a miserable person you can be if you make enough money on a show like Seinfeld. <laughs> and he was, so creative, he was so successful with this, at painting himself like this, that Jerry Seinfeld himself, years later, he would cameo as Jerry Seinfeld on the FX comedy uh, Louie, playing himself, and not as... The cheerful TV star. But as a man who sides up to wealthy friends and who throws other friends, longtime friends, under the bus when they embarrass him. The idea, and the idea there is that we're seeing the actual Jerry Seinfeld. So let me move on to another example: the grotesque, a grotesque Christmas example. Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. It's a, a Norman Lear-created parody of soap operas. Probably many of you have never heard of this before. It briefly appeared in the 1970s. In this show, a husband, the husband of the main character, is impaled on a Christmas tree. Um, Why is this important to us here? Uh, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, ran only one season, but in many ways, it's the missing link between quality TV today and the early days of TV. It is basically a send-up of how bad TV had been. It was very knowing, and it was very uneasy. There's a episode where a child evangelist is electrocuted, and there's another where hostages are taken. It was, it was, it was fucking nuts, actually, for the show. Um, in one episode, the, uh, the housewife, uh, she obsessively cleans the dirt in her tub for the entire episode. Meanwhile, a serial killer is stalking her. Um, she's unaware of this. I would watch the show when I was homesick often from school. It aired day and night actually, which is kind of unusual. And like a lot of soap operas, it satirized. It felt very, very sleazy, even to me at that age. The characters seemed heavily stoned and dazed and kind of unsure of things, as if they were, as if they were, the only thing they were aware of was that they were in a TV show like this. Later, Taxi, a much more successful sitcom, would present similar kind of characters, people who were not going anywhere, and it would make the audience really keenly aware that the that we knew that these characters really weren't going anywhere. For a medium to take itself seriously, I think it needs to recognize that kind of longing in everyone. Uh, finally, to cap this uh, Christmas trilogy that I'm talking to you about, A Charlie Brown Christmas. At 51 years old, it's the er- oldest Christmas special. It's a slight 20-minute cartoon based on Peanuts. But it's important to the evolution TV, I think, because it was quiet and it was lonesome. And it was very melancholy. It didn't seem to recognize that it was a cartoon, only that... It hated how co-opted the holidays had become by uh, the very TV networks that were paying to air it. Uh, Charlie Brown Christmas was moving, and it had this sort of earnest embrace of religion that makes audiences uncomfortable even today, which I think is kind of the point here. And Without Charlie Brown Christmas, we wouldn't have The Simpsons, which is arguably, I think, maybe arguably the greatest TV show ever. Um, Like Taxi, which was also produced by James L. Brooks, and also about people who weren't going anywhere. The Simpsons, that's what I'm talking about. The Simpsons uh, barely left Springfield, and have barely left Springfield in their 30 years on the air. If, um, if Charlie Brown Christmas suggested that an animated show could have grace notes, The Simpsons exploded and improved on that idea. Ask yourself what The Simpsons is. Is it a cartoon? Then it's, is it just a cartoon? Is it a comedy? Is it just a comedy? Uh, it was ta- it's taken advantage of its long life, and it's gotten us, given us a town of characters, each with a lot of dimensions, who are not real, but not unlike, say, a Muppet on Sesame Street, they work because there's, there's no barrier. You don't feel any kind of barrier between the everyday, your everyday, and the fact that this yellow man named Homer Simpson, how he feels. You kind of feel like him, I guess. There's a play in New York and Chicago recently called uh, Mr. Burns, a post electric play. It was popular. It was very critical. It was a critical smash. I'm not sure if it's been here in Australia, but it takes place after the apocalypse. And to pass the time, the survivors tell each other um, plots of old episodes of The Simpsons. <laughs> this is a serious play. Um, because those episodes, that, that sort of thing has been kind of passed down, been passed down decade by decade. Um, and they tell each other these plots, and it kind of becomes a little bit like Shakespeare. And then hundreds of years later, this is, and this is all in the play, by the way, The Simpsons really, truly have become the new Shakespeare. They've become also kind of a religion. The Simpsons are really the only nugget of culture that we're remembered by. Which, and I'm kind of good with that. I don't know how you guys feel, but I'm, I'm okay with that. Because I think there's a morality in The Simpsons that's not minor. It's not, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a frivolous thing. In Game of Thrones, for instance, um, when Ned Stark is... Uh, Ned Stark, sorry is beheaded early in the show's life. Uh, It's a shock because the actor, Sean Bean, he's recognizable, and Ned Stark is a good man. And in the end, that really doesn't have anything, doesn't mean, means nothing. Um, On The Simpsons, Ned Flanders, who's Homer's neighbor, loses his wife. She's killed by a T-shirt cannon at a sporting event. (laughs) But But it's important because Ned is also the most morally upstanding character on The Simpsons, and it doesn't matter. But see, when something like that happens, then really great art can happen, I think. Um, I think before we continue, I kind of need to clarify a few terms here. Highbrow, lowbrow, middlebrow. We're, we're in the Sydney Opera House, so we're highbrow. Congratulations. <laughs> um, <laughs> highbrow came first. Uh, the term dates to about 1900, when a New York journalist suggested that smarter people had higher foreheads. You, you kind of have to love that uh, uh, the term highbrow itself derives from such an aggressively stupid idea. Um, it's true. Lowbrow, therefore, are the Cro-Magnons among us. The, the lowbrow cultures, fart jokes, and action movies, and reality TV, and anything that you really don't have to work at to appreciate. Uh, if you're a millennial, I think you probably, uh, I want to kind of underline this because it's important. Uh, people in the 20th century actually believed this bullshit. Um, a lot of people still do, actually. In, last summer in Chicago, there's a, ju- a judge had to rule on whether certain concert venues deserved the city's tax credit that went to fine art venues. So opera and symphony and theater received a tax credit in Chicago. Meanwhile, other kind of venues that you have DJs, for instance, or rock bands or movie theaters that don't show movies with subtitles, they do not get a tax credit. Uh, in the United States, for a very long time, highbrow TV meant masterpiece theater, that's what public TV in the United States calls shows that were often imported from England. Uh, basically, if TV was British, that meant it wasn't just good, it was a masterpiece. <laughs> um, it's true. To be thoughtful was to be British, too. Um, that these shows were often inert. They were kind of like D.H. Lawrence on a long steamer trip. It didn't really matter because intent, intent is kind of equated with quality here. Masterpiece theater was actually the poster child for the critic Dwight Macdonald would have called the middle brow. Dwight MacDonald is incredibly important to this whole talk we're doing here. Dwight MacDonald was a major US critic in post-war America, and you can't really understand how good TV got without understanding him a little bit. He was a giant prick, okay? <laughs> at, at Yale he wrote, this is true, at Yale he wrote a letter to the school newspaper decrying that the teachers who were teaching Shakespeare basically weren't didn't weren't up to it. He felt that Yale should not be teaching Shakespeare because it didn't have the right staff. Later, he was a writer for The New Yorker and something of a middle-brow hunter. That became his sort of identity. His subject was essentially hating middle-brow culture, and he was very famous for it, and because he was famous, he was very influential. To McDonald, if you struggled with art, that was a, good sh- that was a sign of a good art. So only if you work for enjoyment can you kind of cultivate yourself, right? But middle-brow culture, the problem with middle brow culture was that it flattered an audience's expectations of being smart and cultured. It watered down our brains, basically. To critics like... Dwight Macdonald. Middlebrow culture was also political. It was a docile, there was a docile, passive passiveness basically that was attached to it, and it would only lead to totalitarianism in the end. He was really serious about this. Kitsch was possible because there was literacy, and because we can manufacture books, culture could then be cheapened. Americans, he believed, didn't really appreciate socialism because middlebrow culture had anesthetized them basically. In The New Yorker, he wrote pans of the Encyclopedia Britannica and the King James Bible. He thought it was dangerous for great masses of people to aspire to ideas that were beyond their understanding. Virginia Woolf, by the way, she hated the middle brow too, but she, was also, she also reviewed books and she, she reviewed works that were in supposedly lesser genres. If she was alive today, she probably wouldn't have wanted to review the new Star Wars movie. But <laughs> McDonald was horrified by that kind of looseness. So, uh, so why should we care about this idiot? We should care because he predicted kind of a fluid ocean that would allow TV to be good. He predicted that in time, audiences would give anything a chance. And he hated this. He was really, he was right, too. If you feel that the Sopranos can be as insightful about humanity as, say, Mozart, then you're part of the problem, too. <laughs> you're destroying what remains of cultivated mankind. Uh, still, I mean, you gotta think that this guy's heart was in the right place. He thought of millbrow culture as bullying, and often it is. He worried about discriminating opinion. The problem is, is that what if culture can be smart and mass at the same time? Uh, he didn't foresee, say, a Bob Dylan or the Kinks or a Beyonce or Otis Redding or Martin Scorsese. He didn't foresee good TV. He's the ancestor of the hipster who hates a band as soon as it gets popular. And he doesn't own a TV, and he kind of is sort of not aware of the culture he's surrounded by, and he's kind of proud of this. If TV is, uh, if TV is achieving anything right now, it's partly because those old distinctions are breaking down beneath their weight. We recognize now that uh, middle-brow culture, that, and by that I mean sort of award-winning movies and, and books, are often uh, how ambitious ideas circulate widely, however watered down and understandable they've become. Culturally, critically, we're more egalitarian today. Alana Ferrante, the celebrated Italian novelist, is is sort of classic middle-brow culture, but you'd be really hard-pressed to find anybody who would complain about her. Clive James, the critic, uh, son of Sydney, he recently wrote a book about binging on TV, and he's dying of leukemia. See it's it's not that we've lowered our brows to accept TV, it's that we've stopped worrying if exciting and spirited smart art is, is a problem, really. Uh, but hold, hold that thought a minute, because for decades, TV was really the ultimate in middle-brow culture, at, at its best. Um, as a medium, TV was less a medium than a piece of furniture. And I mean, literally, it was furniture. The first TVs went on sale in 1946. Uh, the first US TV broadcast in this country was 1956, because of the Melbourne Olympics. Um, TV was an idiot box for a long time I'm sure you guys have all heard that phrase. Um, but that was, it was called the idiot box because it was not physically reliable. The picture was often bad. You would break the knob off. And, I mean, I grew up, we would use pair of pliers to change the channel because we would lose the knob so often. Uh, you shelled out a fortune for a TV, and then there wasn't much to see, and it barely worked. Also, it was full of idiots. Um, the great British documentaries of David Attenborough, they flourished in the early days of TV because t- animals were really fun on TV, which is not really that much different than how cats are really fun on your phone. Uh, movie stars did not do TV, because it was below their own brow, right? Movie stars were much more likely to do radio then. It was important, this is really important to note because while there's still movie stars now who kind of find it a a medium of last resort, Tom Cruise comes to mind and I guess Jack Nicholson, uh, the nature of contemporary Hollywood, special effects driven movies, fewer movies for adults, has kind of driven TV stars to, I'm sorry, has driven movie stars to TV. That's one reason, that's one reason TV got high. Uh, Scorsese, Jane Campion, Woody Allen. When Nick Pizzolatto came up with HBO's uh, True Detectives, he insisted on a brief number of episodes and by changing the entire cast every season to attract a movie star schedule. Ironically, early on, TV established itself as a writer's medium. Movies were for directors and stars, and TV was for writers. In Hollywood, that was kind of a backhanded compliment. But it was also a promising thing. Uh, That meant theater could kind of be accomplished on TV. The first show to be recorded on videotape was I Love Lucy in 1956. And it was important to TV's creative evolution because it meant material could be refined and selected before it aired. It also meant that TV was easier to make, uh, and that because TV was easier to make, a formula would have to become a necessity at some point. Before this, the best TV was really live drama. Uh, Marty, 12 Angry Men. Videotape suggested that if you could get that kind of urgency all the time... That'd be a terrific thing. The problem with that, though, is that great directors like John Frankenheimer, who worked on early, in early TV, they didn't want to pound out episode after episode with, uh, of a show with an indefinite ending, so they turned to movies. John Frankenheimer, as many of you probably know, ended up, went on to direct The Manchurian Candidate, among many others. And yet, not unlike movies or TV, great TV today, the best of TV in the 1950s and the 60s was made, were made by artists who were given the keys to the car. And told to do whatever they liked. Arguably the most important to TV's evolution early on, certainly, was Rod Serling. He was TV's first auteur. He was a highbrow believer, actually. He was an infantryman in World War II. He was a Jew who converted to Unitarianism. Uh, he had written the early TV dramas, uh, the early TV drama Requiem for a Dream, and the early TV movie Patterns. As a uh, reward for his work, he was allowed to create a show that basically would accommodate no formula at all only metaphor, and that show was The Twilight Zone. He took on conformity and paranoia, the fear that your neighbors are actually monsters, nuclear war, nuclear war, all often handled as a metaphor. He also died assuming that he had failed, but if you watch Black Mirror, you you know he did not actually fail. (laughs) He was also not alone in the idea that TV was inherently malleable. Before Law and Order gave us a weekly show that would be ripped from the headlines, in the 1960s, The Defenders suggested that such an idea could thrive on TV. Before the West Wing and *Wire*, The Wire, uh, the cultural fissures in the United States could be seen on East Side, West Side with George T. Scott, which was about a social worker in a New York uh, slum. Even a series as long-running and predictable as Gunsmoke, a Western, saw genre as mutable. If characters were credible, the scenario could be worked any, any endless ways. So maybe Game of Thrones will go on forever, actually. But there's a type of person who's, who's really important in this period, too. And that's, I call him the always-on guy. You probably know exactly what I'm talking about when I just say those words. The always-on the always guy. He's perpetually bland. He's alert. He says really not much, but he's got a square jaw, and he's kind of handsome. He kind of represents early TV. I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, he was sort of the ultimate individual, right? He is key to this talk, actually, because as a child I would watch the American talk show host David Letterman, and I thought, I would, I remember thinking this, this guy's the future. He's sort of, he's what I'm gonna be watching in uh, 100 years if I'm still alive. He was, also, he was the always on guy, but also he's always reminding us that people like him on TV were probably pretty empty and one dimensional and, and even dumb. Uh, Letterman was really subversive, making fun of people who paid his check long before corporations were really willing to play along with this kind of thing. In many ways, he was the precedent to HBO's Larry Sanders show, in which Gary Shandling played a secretly needy, relatable creature of little substance, who also happens to be the host of a talk show on a major network. Much later, uh, TV would bring that idea to a head with Mad Men, which in many ways is a kind of like a funhouse mirror of, of early television. It's about authenticity, but in a sort of a prismatic way. The creator Matthew Weiner, who's a veteran of The Sopranos, he was writing about how hard it is to truly change. So by the time we're watching Mad Men, TV is not really old TV anymore. It's kind of autopsy on the always-on guy. Don Draper is the ultimate always-on guy. He's fake right down to his identity. In one episode, he asks a client, "What is happiness?" And then he answers his own question. He says, it is the moment before you need more happiness. <laughs> After that, I doubt TV will ever be the same. <laughs> Growing up in the 1970s, important TV was really uh, really easy to identify because it was generally labeled important. It was actually, the, f- the w- phrase they would use was event TV. And um, this usually meant TV miniseries. Um, Today, we think about the miniseries as really groundbreaking, probably because of the way it, the subjects it took on. So. Roots in Slavery, The Day After, and Nuclear War, Scenes from a Marriage, and Divorce. The trouble is the miniseries would often kind of, um, they would often kind of blur together a little bit, and um, because it was so different from the rest of television, and you never really want to watch another one, you never really want to watch, watch any one twice. Today I'd argue they're mostly important because episode-wise, they have a shelf life. They last only so long, nine episodes, five episodes, and they're out. See, until the last decade or so, TV still thought a regular show that worked well should work indefinitely. Indeed, TV works to an extent because it's always there and always constant, but then you have something like the paranoid 1960s head spinner, The Prisoner, which I don't know if anybody here remembers that show at all. Um, It's on reruns. Uh, It suggested that a show could end definitively, but also with a big question mark at the end. Um, Even more vital, I think, was The Fugitive, the TV series, which was from the same decade. It was about to be canceled, and the fate of its characters were going to be left dangling in the wind. Um, and then the show's creators argued that fans of the series would probably want some closure. After years, they wanted to know the identity of the one-armed man, which is kind of an amazing thing that people would want an ending to a show. But that was a revelation. Um, another, you know, serialization was basically, serialization itself was kind of a revelation, that a show could tell a story that is ongoing and not necessarily contained within 30 to 60 minutes. So this was a big This was a big change in thinking. MASH is often considered the peak of um, TV prior to the golden age of TV that we're living in. But I I think a far more important show was the cop show, Hill Street Blues. Watch it now and find it, and it doesn't hold up that well. But it does kind of play like a letter to the future. Um, Right now, this this letter would be, uh, right now you're watching Cagney and Lacey, but soon TV's going to play like a Robert Altman movie and people are going to talk over one another and the storylines are going to continue on for week after week. And because there's a lot of time available to regular TV, there will be a lot of main characters, not just one or two. Even as a child, I recognized Hill Street Blues as kind of accessible but odd. Uh, I There's a show I loved as a kid called Chips, which many of you probably know. And every week, basically, this is what happened. The characters would run behind a hill and something would explode. That was essentially what happened on Chips. Uh, Hill Street Blues didn't do this. Time basically became the most important thing for a TV show. It was the most unique quality that TV, it was what TV could offer art. But it took TV a really long time to see that. Before HBO got into creating original series, the, the network show *Wise Guy* in the late 1980s, which is what gave the world Kevin Spacey, he gave, a, it gave us a crime show where a single crime could be the focus of a, of a show for an entire season. That set a precedent. The other precedent here is British TV itself, where a series is however many episodes the creators think it should be. That's not always true, but it's often true. But that seems nuts to Hollywood, still even today to many people. Um, It's nuts, but it's very smart. Because if a show needs to, say, be seven episodes, and if everybody's watched the really excellent new show Atlanta, um, that's seven episodes, each one is a half hour. That's what it is, basically. That's that's one season of a show. Why try to stretch a show and the audience's patience beyond what it should be, into some kind of mediocrity? Uh, The answer to that, of course, is advertising. But that's really less important in the age of Netflix and HBO. Aaron Sorkin used to tell a story about the West Wing they would be slogging through 22, 23 episodes of The West Wing a season, and he would say to his director, you know, if we were British, we'd be done by now. Um, And then his director would turn to him, and this was a routine thing, his director would turn to him and say, yes, but we'd all be living in smaller houses. Um, We tend to think of a medium improving through freedom of expression, and that's true for TV, too. I think about, um, when I think about the evolution of TV, I think about Richard Pryor on Saturday Night Live in the early 70s, sparring with Chevy Chase, a black man and a white man calling each other racist names for laughs. But a few years earlier, there's um, Norman Lear's All in the Family, which was kind of this long fireside chat um, with an entire country about its racism. The 1971 premiere actually began with a disclaimer, which was you were going to see an exploration of prejudice and frailties in a mature fashion. That's how it started. Remember, TV's middle brow, which means that the audience should be treated like a child, not trusted to do, the un, to do the right thing or really understand what they're being put in front of. Today's show feels, like, uh, feels very prescient, I think, given a Trump presidency and the kind of right-wing populism that's sweeping the, the planet. Um, the show's theme song, which was sung, sung in this kind of barroom swoon, it went, I'm not gonna sing, but I'll, okay. <laughs> Boy, the way Glenn Miller played songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days which is much catchier than America, Make America Great Again, I think, right? Um, but it's the same point, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, this was important TV, but, the, but it was not labeled as important TV, not like a miniseries was. Uh, neither was the 1971 TV movie Duel. Steven Spielberg says he watches it every single year, and he, he probably should because he directed it. It was his first movie, and it was about a man in the American Southwest playing cat and mouse with a massive truck. And that's the whole story. That's the entire movie, actually. It's pure cinema in a lot of ways. Um, it's also p- pure TV in a lot of ways. It's perfectly made, and it kind of gives a question, leaves you with a question, which is, can you make a work of art that's about nothing more than the medium itself? Can, is that enough? Um, we like to think of TV as oblivious and impervious to, to thought, but the people who made TV in the earlier days, in the first couple of decades, certainly, they were thinking about this. They knew, for instance, that a smile in a character's eyes, the twinkle, that telegraph, that the that the actor was actually present, it was closer to theater than TV. It reminded us that TV could actually be intimate. Again and again, I think the best TV does know this. It knows its own history. St. Elsewhere, which gave us Denzel Washington, ended with a disabled child studying the show's hospital in a snow globe. The show had been a fantasy in his head the whole time. Um, Basically, TV was life, and life was TV. Tina Fey's *30 Rock*, I think, makes it plain that it couldn't exist without sort of old Catherine Hepburn movies, or, or *I Love Lucy*, or the cringe comedy of Ricky Gervais in *The British Office*. But it it honors those influences, I think, without feeling beholden to the past. Its finest contribution, I think, is in a lot of this. And it was a great show, but it's, I think its finest contribution is not sort of never letting us forget that TV is often financed and made by people who really have no interest in great art at all. During its run, it routinely, I don't know if everybody remembers this, but during its run it would um, routinely fight on its parent company, which is General Electric, the company that owned NBC. Uh, It would make Alec Baldwin, who was the network boss, the president of television programming and microwave ovens. (laughs) Uh, But I also like to think of The Sopranos in this regard too, because its characters would exist. Its characters exist because they're aware of the lineage of great art that's associated with their business, the mob. A movie like The Godfather is not a movie to them. It's sort of a justification for them and for their own, their fearsomeness and their cruelties. And it provides a meaning to them. Um, It kind of gives them, they think of themselves as fictions in a way. They quote movie lines, they quote movies line for line basically, um, often in the the show itself. There's a wonderful scene in the short-lived NBC series, Freaks and Geeks, which gave us not only um, the co-creator Judd Apatow, but James Franco and Seth Rogen and... Jason Segel, and if you guys have never watched it, definitely stay home tonight and watch it. Um, a nerd is at this, this scene. Uh, a nerd is home after school, no one is home with him. He only has the TV for company, specifically he's watching a talk show. He's watching a clip of a real show, the Merv Douglas show. Gary Shandling, which is pre-Larry pre Sanders, is doing his stand-up routine. So he, again, he's watching a real clip of a TV show that actually happened. Um, the guy, kid makes himself a grilled cheese sandwich and he watches and he laughs and that's the whole scene. That's the entire scene. A kid watching TV and eating a grilled cheese sandwich after school. That's, that's, it's, I, I, I mention this because it's um, tender and it's very observant um, and because it was also, I think it was kind of me. It was probably a lot of people too but in that year, I was often bored after school and I would kind of find solace in whatever sliver of TV was on in 1980. This is binge-worthy TV. Uh, it was like TV, you know, TV is like um, TV that's like reading a great good book, basically. TV that you kind of see yourself inside of. And you wonder, uh, ultimately, like, as with a good book, how do they know that about me? So you're wondering, when did TV get good exactly? So I mentioned Louis earlier. Uh, it isn't the start of when TV got good, but I think in many ways it's the promise of TV. If you haven't seen Louis, you should find it. When the histories of golden age of TV are written, it's going to be significant. It treats TV as simply expression, kind of a palette for expression. It tells the story of a stand-up comic in New York, and yet in the season finale of this, the one season finale, he gets on a plane on a whim and flies to China. It's New Year's Day, and he walks into a village and he finds a family and they invite him in for a meal. And that's how the season ends. Completely random, really exquisitely random. It's beautiful. It makes no sense, sort of in a way, but it's it's also beautiful. Um, I mention this because the show's creator, Louis C.K., he believes one person can write a great TV show. A lot of TV still does not work this way. There are writers' rooms, of course. feels a good show can be a mini-movie or a stage play. It can run 42 minutes, or it can run 32 minutes, or it can run 22 minutes. It can be a memory, or it can be a flashback, it can be a fantasy, it can be a slice of life, and it can still be the same show week after week. Uh, Like Rod Serling, possibilities, I think, drive him. Also, is Louis over? Nobody really knows if Louis's over. Louis C.K. and the network FX have this deal that allows Louis to come back to the show when he feels he has something fresh to say again. That's kind of how t- peak TV is being made. It sort of mirrors what happened during the last golden age of movies, which was roughly 67 to 1980, or Raging Bull to, to uh, sorry, um, Bonnie and Clyde to Raging Bull. Uh, movies, got good, movies got good then because the business model was upended by television. There was this laziness to the vision that was being doled out by the aging studio heads. TV, film, needed, film needed fresh eyes. TV is now getting good because the model has also changed again, but partly by technology. Streaming and subscription services like Netflix and HBO mean a show can have a small audience and still be a success if the network feels it's a necessity. Netflix is actually notorious for letting very few people know how many people are actually watching a show like House of Cards. Very few people know... Know those numbers? Indeed, if you don't, you don't even need a TV to um, binge on TV now. Did you know that in ni- 2015 it was actually the first year since TV was introduced that the number of homes in the world uh, that own at least one TV has decreased? Has not? It's not increased. And that's basically because good TV can exist outside of TV now. Uh, it's a good thing for a culture that wants to be diverse and emphatic, uh, celebrated, transparent on Amazon. Was not, it's not even on a TV network. Uh, it's about the transgender community. A show like Broad City on Comedy Central, which is basically girls without the preciousness, uh, exists <laughs> <laughs> uh, It exists because its creators, two young women, just basically decided to make a show uh, online first, Then it got picked up. Creatively, a couple of shows in the mid-90s, I think, heralded peak TV, which is what we're living through right now. Uh, the first that comes to mind, the first that comes to mind, really, is the Larry Sanders show on HBO. I, I really can't say enough about the show. It started in 1992, and its understanding of the sort of petty embarrassments and cruelties that define every day, basically how we live, with sort of in a perpetual absurdity. If we'd really stop to be outraged by it, is now called cringe TV. Larry Sanders was shot like a movie. Its dialogue seemed to be the things that people say that we're not supposed to hear. In one episode. A gay assistant sues his boss for sexual harassment, and his, boss response, his boss's response is, God damn it, whatever happened to courtesy and respect in this world? In the finale, characters say all the things that they couldn't say to each other because they now they no longer owe each other anything, including common decency. It remains a blueprint, I think, for peak TV at its best, where it can be defined by, which is sort of a raw, even literary-minded honesty. There's also Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I think is kind of important to talk about here a little bit, Created by Joss Whedon, who's not known primarily, I think, by a lot of people for the Marvel, Marvel's Avengers movies, uh, consciously set out to change the culture, to place women at the center of things. Its title didn't probably help its reach very much, but it took a cue from TV in the 60s, and it kind of soaked in metaphor. So it's about a girl in high school whose boyfriend becomes violent, and so she sets out to slay her demons. She's a vampire, and she's a, he's a vampire, and she's a vampire slayer. Um, she was just born to it, basically. She didn't really ask to be. And the show also st- found time for a silent film homage and musical and kind of cheap teen comedy, I suppose. It played with genre because it was only, its only concern was that the characters would stay credible. And in genre, you can say a lot, not being taken very seriously. And sometimes for an artist, not being taken very seriously is the best thing to happen to you. And so when Buffy's mom dies in the show, it's a natural death, which is nobody saw that coming. But I I think it was a kind of a clue. I remember watching it thinking something's up with TV. It's good that they can kind of accommodate this. Peak TV, I think, started in earnest in 1999 with the premiere of The Sopranos. I think if we're going to talk about how good TV is today, we have to sort of start with The Sopranos in 1999. Um, It single-handedly, finally, it kind of confirmed that TV could be art. In fact, for several years, The Sopranos, I would argue, was the most vital art being made in any medium at all. The Sopranos was so caustic and funny and strange and grim in its outlook on human nature, that the only thing that kind of kept it from becoming this sort of vision of Dante and falling into sheer hell was that, always at its margins were these reminders of the transcendence of art. There's a scene in that first season that I really, I'll never, I never—I don't think I'll ever be able to shake. Maybe you remember this. Tony brings his daughter to a New Jersey church. They sit in the pews and he explains that this place was built by Italian immigrants with their own hands, goddammit. And they worked and they put up with a lot from the earlier Americans, the people that hated the Italians, and you should be proud by this. He gets increasingly annoyed as he's telling her this and he's like, they made it brick by brick with their fucking hands, you know? Ask yourself anybody who makes anything brick by brick these days. But by the time he's done, she's already kind of tuned him out. The show has a lot to say about America. And generations and violence and family, but also anxiety and the decline of a culture into caricature. It's a cliché to describe a great TV show now as having the texture of a long movie or the insights of a great novel, but that's not really wrong here. It's not, re- and, and not. *Sopranos* basically wanted to do all it wanted to do was use a medium to tell an epic, regardless of what that medium was. In fact, it was kind of merciless about TV. If you watch it closely, there's a scene where a TV writer tries to sell his Emmy award pay off a debt, and he's told that any kind of award for TV is useless. <laughs> um, creator David Chase had real contempt for art without ambition, regardless of what it was. I spent a lot of time with him on stories over the years, and um, he's like his show. He doesn't really suffer fools at all. Talking to him is to kind of be reminded, a little bit like David Simon, and who made The Wire, and Joss Whedon, um, who made Buffy, and even Tom, Tom Fontana, who made Oz, which kind of gave HBO the confidence to take on The Sopranos. Um, TV kind of needed people like David Chase to aim high, people who kind of want to show you in a pointillistic fashion, um, face by face and scene by scene, how the world truly works. TV was prime for generations for this up, had been primed for generations for this upheaval. And now that it was facing this unrelenting market forces like video games and the internet, uh, it would have given the expanse to do it. These are people who don't really care about what TV is supposed to be like. By that I mean David Chase and David Simon. At least certainly in in, um, David Chase's case, they had worked in TV for so long that they kind of knew how to crack it open a little bit. Um, Fun fact, years earlier on a show called The Rockford Files, which Chase had worked on, he wrote an episode about gangsters who hang out in a deli, and the characters' names are Carmella, Anthony Jr., and Tony. Uh, it's hard to overstate really how important The the Sopranos is. Because of The Sopranos, TV asserts itself as a writer's medium again. Because of The Sopranos, a World War II series like Band of Brothers, created by Steven Spielberg, naturally lending itself to some sort of bombastic nature. Instead, it focuses really on the quiet and the people in those situations. Because of The Sopranos, TV embraces the anti-hero. Because of The Sopranos, TV aspires to the grandeur of film. And you could see Breaking Bad for that. Because The Sopranos, again, which is often very funny, TV decides that comedy doesn't really actually have to be funny, haha. ha There's this great, unappreciated show on Comedy Central that I love. It's, it's over now, but it was, it was called Review. It lasted only two seasons. The idea was that a critic reviews life experiences as if they were movies. So, eating 15 pancakes would get one star. Uh, attending an orgy gets two stars. Uh, be, oh, being racist gets half a star, because he can't bring himself to give anything no stars. Um, (laughs) rather than play these segments though for shallow gag the show swung back and forth between the jokes and the effect that those experiences were having on the critics family by the end of the first season the critic had also burned down his own home and gotten divorced because the Sopranos TV was no longer afraid to leave you kind of unsettled and feeling worse at the end of an hour the final scene of the final episode of that show is really controversial of course Uh, nothing is settled and the screen fades to black I'm sure you know it but as a way of defining the mood of an entire decade, I think a, a decade that began with 9-11 and then kind of waited around for the next shoe to drop, uh, it couldn't have been more perfect. At the end of The Sopranos TV, Tony, like a lot of us, were kind of left in limbo. We're neither dead nor alive. We're always, always going to feel uncertain, regardless of what actually happens. Without a bleak, kind of rigorous honesty like that, I think we could not have had in a roundabout way an episode of Inside Amy Schumer, uh, I think from last year or a year and a half ago, Where uh, Julie Louise Dreyfus and Tina Fey, they explain that on an actress's last fuckable day, she's put on a small boat and pushed out to sea. Um, This is how TV works right now. It's a little bit of then. It's a little bit of now. It's a combination. Sopranos gave TV the confidence to make statements that we weren't really ready for, and All in the Family decades earlier gave TV a faith in failing characters as characters as kind of reflections of us. All in the Family had this uh, housewife named Edith. I don't know if everybody's familiar with All in the Family. Uh, She was the wife of Archie Bunker, who's the racist protagonist. She's kind, and she's sort of blinkered and abused. um, But she's always going to be there, and she never really deserved the shit that her husband gave her, but she endured. I think we like to think about a show like that as the future because it offended a lot of people, but I think of it as the future more because it's about empathy, ultimately. Um, Before I end here, I I think we have to... I should probably ask, um, is TV, is Peak TV calling Peak TV Peak TV? It's the wrong way to describe this era? I think... You know, it's 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 tough because in a way it does sort of suggest that with the peak, there's a decline. There are many historians who call the 1950s the golden age of peak TV. Mainly it seems because of I Love Lucy and the great live dramas of the period. Using that standard, the American critic David Bancouli, he calls our age the platinum age of TV. In the record business, a gold record is, is a bestseller, but a platinum is even better. It's kind of a phenomenon. I take a bus to work every day to the Tribune and I've noticed that far more people tend to be watching TV shows on their devices at 7 o'clock in the morning than reading. TV has taken the place of movies, as far as relevancy goes. It seems to have taken the place of reading for a lot of people. Uh, Whereas I grew up with film and literary references kind of dotting my brain, I think this generation will have TV, those will be TV references. Whereas I stayed up all night reading a book, Um, Now You Binge. Uh, I do a little bit of both, probably most of you do a little bit of both. Peak TV means room, though, I think, for competing visions. If it were all innovation all the time, it would not allow anyone in. And the nice thing about Peak TV is that it wrestles with legacy. If I have a reservation about Peak TV, it's that most of Peak TV, even some of the best work uh, like Breaking Bad, like Mad Men, it aspires to timelessness of cinema, but stylistically it kind of can come off looking a little flat and even cheap. It's, it's a trade-off, I think, for all the screen time that they're given. There's not much money left to spend on the production. Um, there's not, uh, relatively speaking. That's not really a serious drawback. A seri- the serious drawback, the one that I can think we have to sort of wrestle with in this age, is this. If we don't have all the kind of time that we say we never have, then how do we actually binge as much as we want to? The trouble within everything, from every generation, available all at once kind of culture, is really who has the time. The president of FX himself told press a couple of years ago that um, there's too much good TV. And and he was serious, he felt there was too much good TV. My next Flix queue is full of shows, and probably yours too, who you, um, that I just take for granted. The structure of a show like The Wire really requires a lot of patience, at least as much patience as it takes to read a short book before you can really see sort of what's what it reveals about itself. The challenge of peak TV is to stand by, it, stand by itself as art. You want TV to do for you what t- art has always done. You want it to show you that you're not alone in the universe, that the world is vast, and there's still things left to explore. The challenge ahead for peak TV, I think, is to have the confidence to fail again and again and with every with more ambition every time, without losing my mom, really. I think who I think of as my mom gets it, then it's fine. Um, TV got high, I think but its glory is gonna sort of always reside in the middle. And so as uh, Larry Sanders would say, you may now click. Thank you.
0: (laughs) If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for more challenging, inspiring, and robust discussions live on stage at the Sydney Opera House. Featuring guests such as African-American activist and co-creator of the Black Lives Matter network, Alicia Garza. Every single second of my life, I'm aware of the fact that I'm black and that that has implications for whether or not I live or die. Spoken word performer and former frontman of Black Flag, Henry Rollins.
1: When I drove back to Washington wow, I was in Black Flag for 90 seconds, man, That I'm going to talk about this for the rest of my life.
0: Former South Sudanese child soldier turned defence lawyer, refugee advocate and New South Wales 2017 Australian of the Year, Deng Adut. No child should be given a gun, should be... Trend user Even video games—they're quite uh, hurtful. I don't play video games. Don't want to go there. Have a uh, flashback. I don't want to see me shooting somebody. It's a long story. A brand new Sydney Opera House podcast-first series that unpacks the stories behind the ideas of some of the world's leading thinkers and culture creators. Subscribe to It's a Long Story now on iTunes and Stitcher.